0: The romance between Nick Blaine and June Osborne of the hit Hulu series The Handmaid's Tale is something of a controversial one. Osblaines are often shamed or ridiculed for shipping what haters have deemed a toxic relationship. We know that's not true, and on this podcast, we will prove it. If you're a fan of The Handmaid's Tale, who ships Nick and June, and you're tired of the undiscerning criticism that endeavors to diminish this captivating love story, well, you're going to want to tune in to this podcast where we deep dive into the debate. Welcome to Nick and June After the Fact. I'm Wanda, your host, fellow Oz Blaine and fierce defender of Nick Blaine. Join me for the conclusion of The Ties That Bind, the truth about trauma bonding. Hey, Nick and June shippers. Thank you for joining me today. This episode will include ATF Recommends, a social media minute, and conclude our discussion on trauma bonding. But first, I would like to announce that we will be on hiatus during the airing of season five of The Handmaid's Tale. We've come to this decision because we are fans of the show and would like to enjoy the show without having to worry about providing an immediate analysis. This podcast's main goal is to provide the facts, and I feel that I am incapable of doing so without having watched the season in its entirety. Our last episode will drop on August 27th. We will provide further information about when we will resume our biweekly schedule as we get closer to the date. ATF Recommends is up next. When searching for something to recommend for this segment, it suddenly occurred to me that many people who tune into the podcast may not have read the first novel. So I decided to do a mini book review of The Handmaid's Tale. I will describe what the book is about, what I like and dislike about the book, and give it a rating of one to five hearts. Let's get into it. The Handmaid's Tale is a novel by Canadian novelist Margaret Atwood. It was first published in 1985. The novel is set in the Republic of Gilead, which is a theocratic totalitarian state run by white Christian fundamentalists known as commanders who run Gilead on laws based on Christian Puritan teachings. Due to severe chemical warfare, fertility rates have reached an extreme low, and there are only a handful of women left who can bear children. These women have been assigned the roles of handmaids, wherein their sole function is to bear children for the commanders they have been assigned to. All women's rights have been taken away, and the women have been classified as handmaids, aunts, wives, or marthas, based on the function assigned to them by the state. Women who refuse to conform to Gilead's laws are classified as unwomen and are either banished to the colonies or Jezebels, a clandestine sexton frequented by well connected commanders. The novel is narrated through the voice of Alfred, a handmaid in Gilead. Throughout the novel, the readers are presented with a first person narration of the events that transpired in Alfred's life as a handmaid and her life prior to the inception of Gilead is narrated through flashbacks. What I particularly like about the book is that we get more background on Holly Maddox, June's mother, and some insight about their relationship. We also get more information on how June feels about Nick. In my opinion, the series pales in comparison. I'm reminded of a question that Max and Lizzie were asked in an interview as to whether they thought if Nick and June met outside of Gilead, if their circumstances were reversed, would they have liked each other? They both said yes, but Max elaborated by saying that for Nick, there was an immediate physical attraction for June. And if you read the book, it was the same for Alfred. She had an immediate sensual attraction to Nick. Alfred speaks about the lines of his body, the texture of his flesh, the glistening of his sweat on his pelt, and his long, sardonic, unrevealing face. She suggests that Nick is not a substitute for Luke, and vice versa. These little details get lost in the series. The first season of the series follows the book exactly, except for a few changes, like the diversity of the characters in the Waterford's Ages, I read the first novel after watching the series, and for me, reading the book gave me a deeper understanding of the complexities of Alfred's relationship with her mother and her love for Nick. I also like that it's a quick read. There are 45 chapters, but they are very short. I would strongly recommend that while reading this book, you pay close attention to the chapters titled, Night. They are very significant because they signify the times that Alfred is alone and silent, recalling the vivid memories of her past. It is a place of freedom for Alfred. Her memories help her to stay strong and deal with her current situation, while informing the reader of important characters that were dearly loved by Alfred in her past. Also, do not ignore the historical notes. They give some insight about which side Nick is on, and so much more. I think if more people paid attention to the historical notes, there would be very little questions about Nick's character. There were two things that I didn't like about the book. One, I wasn't fond of the Nick in the novel. I felt like he was less affectionate and less vulnerable than the Nick in the series. Thank goodness I watched the series before reading the novel. The other thing was the cliffhanger ending. It left me with a lot of unanswered questions. I kind of like things wrapped up in the end. That's just my preference. Osblains are often criticized and told that this is not a love story, but there is a romantic plot. It is weaved throughout this entire story. Alfred herself is an unabashed romantic who writes in the context of a society which firmly rejects romanticism. It is opposed by almost all the viewpoints in the novel, other than her own. One instance of this, for example, is found in chapter 34. Love, said Aunt Lydia, with distaste. Don't let me catch you at it. No mooning and juning around here, girls, wagging her finger at us. Love is not the point. There is an explicit debate about the whole question of falling in love, and it has been subjected to a series of critiques, both from a feminist perspective and a patriarchal one. Offer's mother is a feminist who sees no value whatsoever in romantic love. Nevertheless, it is the love story that I connect with, and I'm not ashamed of that. There are many reasons why people are joined to this story. It could be that it's a dystopian story, or it could be the cinematography, or for many, like myself, it's the romance. Romance is very important in storytelling. It creates human connection to the story. And in this particular novel, it provides a respite and a sense of relief from the character's horrific circumstances. If you're a fan of a dystopian novel, relationship drama, or a novel that is a quick read with a rating of four and a half hearts, ATF recommends The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Our social media minute is next. About three weeks ago, while researching topics for this segment, I came across a newly published article in the Showbiz cheat sheet that read The Handmaid's Tale, Elizabeth Moss will direct the season five finale. I don't know about you, but this made me very excited. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, Lizzie has become one of my favorite directors. Directing the finale of The Handmaid's Tale is usually reserved for heavy hitting A list TV filmmakers which having only made her directorial debut last season, she has easily become. Who better to tell June's story than the woman who has played her from the beginning? I'm so excited because it was under Lizzie's direction that we got two of the most beautiful Oz Blaine moments to date. I would like to share some of the comments that members of the cast made about Lizzie's directing them. Madeline Brewer, who plays Janine, said... She's an actor's director. She knows what she wants. She knows how to ask it of us. And she lets you take risk. Max Mangala, who plays Nick, said, there's an ease when Lizzie is in control. I love that The Handmaid's Tale puts women in lead production roles. They brought in two female directors and a female cinematographer this season. And the majority of their writing staff are women. In a time when women are being stripped of some of their fundamental rights, I say bravo to The Handmaid's Tale. Before we continue our discussion about trauma bonding, I would like to first issue a trigger warning. We're going to be talking about abuse and how it affects victims. So, if this content is difficult for you to hear, please take care of yourself. If you need to step away, please don't hesitate to do so. After I recorded part one, I realized that I hadn't issued a warning, and for that, I apologize. We'll start this segment off by reviewing what we've already discussed that is, what a trauma bond is, what it isn't, the seven stages of trauma bonding and the characteristics of the toxic partner. Again, a trauma bond is not some trendy term to be applied to a relationship that you don't understand or one that is not to your liking. It is first and foremost an abusive relationship. The bond occurs when the abusive relationship turns into a cyclical manner of abuse. For example, the abuse occurs and then it is followed by acts of kindness and affection, and that cycle repeats continuously. The victim really struggles to make sense of what they are feeling because the abuse always goes hand in hand with love and intimacy. And in some cases, the victim will develop sympathy for the perpetrator. If trauma bonding is at play and someone has bonded with their abuser, they will likely try to justify or defend the abuse. Remember we talked about the victim making excuses for the perpetrator? Like, they didn't mean it, or it really is my fault, I made them angry. They will even agree with the abusive person's reasoning for treating them poorly. A trauma bond doesn't just occur in romantic relationships, but it can also occur in the form of child abuse, Ancest situations, elderly abuse, exploitative employment, kidnapping and hostage situations, human trafficking, and high-control religious environments. Really, in any type of relationship, that one person can dominate the other. Now, the seven stages of trauma bonding are, and you can find the description of each stage in part one of the series, But for the sake of time, we're going to just go through the list. Number one is love bombing. Number two is trust and dependency. Three is criticism. Four is gaslighting. Five is surrender. Six is loss of self. And seven is addiction. There are multiple factors that increase a person's risk of trauma bonding. For example, low socioeconomic status, mental health issues, and not having a support system all increase the chances that someone can become trapped in an abusive relationship. Now, how do you recognize the signs of trauma bonding? A trauma bond is a powerful emotional attachment that often begins with intimacy, and love before the abusive behavior develops the victim struggles to reconcile the strong attachments they formed with someone who also hurts them in relationships where there is trauma bonding it's likely that that person being abused keeps themselves small to feel safe they appease are obedient and remain in the relationship because they have deemed it a normal relationship now Just that phrase right there, they become obedient or they appease or they make themselves feel safe. That does not resemble Nick and June at all. You know, if you've seen Nick and June fight before, no one, neither one of them makes themselves small. Neither one of them requires that of the other. People want to feel loved. So a person who is being abused may be inclined to remain in a situation with someone who at times shows them affection and kindness, even if there's other unwanted behavior. In other words, they take the good with the bad. Now, first, we're going to look at the cycle of abuse. It is easy to recognize and decide to leave a relationship when it's all bad, but abusers don't always treat their victims poorly. They apologize, promise to change, profess their love, and other things to try to keep their relationship. That's the stage two of the seven stages of trauma bonding, the trust and dependency stage. When they do everything to win your trust and make you depend on them heavily for love and validation. I would just like to emphasize that there is no excuse for abuse at all. And if you recognize any of these signs, please reach out for help. Do not suffer in silence. There are five main types of abuse that might be present. Emotional abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, and psychological abuse. Some of them can be easier to spot than others. When these behaviors begin to repeat in a pattern, it becomes a cycle of abuse. The cycle is as follows. First, there's tension. Then the abuse occurs. Then there's reconciliation. I'm sorry. I promise not to hurt you again. And lastly, the calm. Now, let's go back to reconciliation. Sometimes the perpetrator will literally cry and be shameful when they're apologizing, but then there's the calm. And this is the period that keeps victims trapped because they're hopeful that the calm might last this time. In a trauma bond, there is a power imbalance. Another reason why the victim is hesitant to leave the abusive relationship because the abuser holds power over them. An example would be financial power. Another sign would be the victim makes excuses for the behavior. This can be a result of gaslighting. The abuser tells the victim that the abuse never happened, wasn't actually that bad, or they deserved it. Keeping the abuse a secret is another sign, usually because the victims think that others wouldn't understand. Wanting to please the abuser is another sign. The abuse might believe that pleasing the abuser will keep things from escalating. Next is distancing from people. Trying to help. Abusers work to distance their victims from their support systems in an effort to position themselves as the only trustworthy person in their victim's life. Next, we have fixating on the good days. Earlier, we talked about the cycle of abuse and how it can cause victims to feel love for their abuser. In a healthy relationship, you don't have to like everything about your partner. But focusing on the common interest and having separate hobbies is one thing. Focusing on the good days and ignoring domestic violence or other types of abuse is another thing entirely. No amount of kindness or affection outweighs emotional or physical abuse, no matter what trauma bonding would have you believe. The next is hoping to change them. If they would just stop beating me, we'd have the perfect relationship. Because there are good times in the relationship that cause the victim to feel love, it may feel like change is possible. But those good times aren't signs that the abuser is capable of changing. They are attempts to coerce the victim into staying. Often abusers will temporarily make the changes their partner requests, only to return to perpetrating the abuse shortly after. No relationship is perfect, but there's a key difference between encouraging your partner to learn how to clean up after themselves or cook for themselves and hoping they stop abusing you. The next is wanting to love despite the abuse. I'm reminded of a movie I watched a couple of years back called The Perks of Being a Wallflower. The movie celebrates inclusivity and tolerance by showing both how people can blossom when they are accepted for who they are and how painful life can be for people who are ignored and mistreated. In the movie, the main character asks his teacher why people stay with people who don't treat them well. The teacher answers, We accept the love we think we deserve. People who are being abused often have low self esteem and they want to feel love, even if that love is part of the cycle of abuse. Feeling worthless might make someone feel like no one else will love them, so they can think they might as well accept the love being shown by their abuser. Do you recognize any of these signs in Nick and June's relationship? I don't. Now that we know the signs of trauma bonding, let's look at the toxic partner, the abuser, the one who's perpetrating the abuse. As we stated in part one, the toxic partner usually has an undiagnosed mood disorder, personality disorder, or addiction. Examples of mood disorders would be depression or bipolar disorder. And an example of a personality disorder would be narcissistic personality disorder. In this scenario, let's assume that Nick is the toxic partner. There's no indication that Nick has a mood disorder or an addiction. So let's look at narcissistic personality disorder. A narcissist doesn't experience love in the way that a person without narcissistic personality disorder does. And here are the reasons why. They can't put anyone before themselves. This reminds me of Fred Waterford there was an interview with Joe Fiennes when he talked about sending Nick away because Nick held him at gunpoint in the finale of season two. He said he sent Nick away to die. He sent Nick to the front to die. And he also talked about what kept him in that room when Nick held him at gunpoint. And he said one of the things that kept Fred in that room was that he was so overwhelmed by Nick's display of his love for his child and for June. And that is something that Fred does not have. Fred is a narcissist, and he is incapable of putting anyone before himself. The next one is they are beyond insecure. They need constant validation and attention. All they do is take. And in this scenario, in this story, This matches Fred exactly. Compare Fred to Nick. There's no comparison. One of the many things that Osblaine's love about Nick is his selfless love for his family. I have never seen a more selfless portrayal of a character like Nick in any TV show that I've ever watched. Here are some examples of Nick's selfless love. When June told Nick that she was pregnant... Before he ever laid eyes on his daughter, he sprung into action and orchestrated June's escape in season two, episode one. Actually, it started in the finale of season one. Now, he was sending her back to her husband knowing that he would never lay eyes on June or their baby. The only thing that mattered was that they were safe. In season four, and now these are just a few acts, Nick's acts of selfless love. In season four, episode nine, June was back with her husband in Canada. Nick never expected to see her ever again. But he used his power to get intel on Hannah's whereabouts, endangering his life for a woman he never expected to see again. And you say, well... How did he endanger his life? Um, because if his friendlies on the ground decided to let someone know that Nick was asking about the whereabout of Hannah, who is very protected because of June's actions in the other seasons, they could have turned him in and he would have been killed. Now, in that same episode, he tells her at the end of episode nine, when they're separating from each other, they're leaving, saying goodbye to each Well, they never say goodbye, so I'm not going to say that. But at the end of that beautiful family reunion, he tells her, try to be happy. He wants her to be happy, even if it's not with him. A narcissist is not capable of selfless love. Now, let's examine Nick and June's dynamic. Remember, in order for there to be a potential for a trauma bond, there must be an abuser and a victim. Nick and June have never abused each other. Their abusers are the Waterfords. Yes, I said there. And quite frankly, if you are incapable of differentiating June's abusers from the person who loves her selflessly, then maybe you should not be watching this show. Or at least stop trying to school me on social media because I ship them. Now, that may sound a little snarky, but I don't care. It infuriates me when people who have not done a basic Google search ridicules others when they have no idea what they're talking about. A trauma bond is not bonding over shared trauma or overcoming obstacles and hard moments together. It is an abusive relationship that involves abusive behavior, followed by acts of kindness and affection. It is cyclical in nature. June is not a woman who is a victim of a trauma bond relationship. She is a woman who, despite the many atrocities inflicted upon her, has retained her humanity. Hers is a story of hope. In the first novel, because lotion and beauty products are forbidden for handmaids, Offered stole butter to moisturize her skin with the hope that one day she'd be touched lovingly. Nick and June's love story represents that hope fulfilled. It cannot be reduced to anything less. That's all we have for today. Join me next time when we tackle another subject related to this beautiful love story. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe or follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to hit the notification icon so that you can be notified of a newly released episode. Leave us a review. Let us know what you think about the podcast. Also, follow us on Instagram at Nick and June after the fact. For those members of the Osbling community, who want to remain positive about our ship, this message is for you. When two hearts are meant for each other, no distance is too far, no time is too long, and no other love can break them apart. Until next time.